Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Breachside Broadcast, home of the finest voxcasting either side of the breach. As Malifaux's most trusted Ethervox station, I would like to lay to rest a few pieces of misinformation that have been circulating about this show and its production staff. There is a persistent and baseless rumour that several of our interns have recently gone missing. Some say these poor wretches drowned while attempting to repair a broadcasting antenna out in the bayou. Others say they ventured into one of the sub-basements of the station and stumbled upon a nest of hungry young Nephilim. Still others claim that they were given to this week's sponsor in return for signing a lucrative advertising contract. All of these stories are nothing but hearsay, gossip and prattle. In fact, this station has never had interns of any kind. Any memory you may have of young Richard or Elizabeth is no doubt the fabrication of a diseased mind. Maybe you should seek professional help, dear listener. Malifaux has many fine doctors who may be able to assist you. This evening's tale takes place in one of this city's most august medical facilities. Perhaps you yourself will end up there. But instead of worrying about a few disappearances and alleged murders, I suggest you take your mind off the subject by sitting back and listening to another one of our notorious tales. I hope you enjoy Patient Confidentiality after this word from our sponsor. This week's episode of the Breachside Broadcast is brought to you by Sebastian's Cadavers. Whether you're a medical student with a dissection project due in the morning, or you just need to fill a chair at your next dinner party, Sebastian's Cadavers has just what you're after. Choose from a wide assortment of cadavers and a range of fragrances, from pungent to putrescent. We're currently offering a two-for-one deal on cadavers from last week's Gremlin Massacre. Get them before the maggots do. Fresh cadavers can also be obtained on short notice. Just let us know when you need it and we'll make it happen. Sebastian's Cadavers. They're dead good. Patient Confidentiality Even in daylight there was something about the sanitarium that sent shivers down the spine. The empty rooms were filled with a sense of panic that lingered from long-forgotten patients. The full moon sliced light through the trees and bars to cast wicked images on the floor. The patient danced his feet about the moving shadows as two orderlies carried him by the arms to his cell. He sang a filthy limerick-inspired drinking song to his moonlight partners at increasingly erratic volumes. The man had dark curls and green eyes that were so bright they almost seemed to glow in the dimly lit hallway. Where'd he pick this one up? One of the broad-shouldered orderlies opened the door 
and the other pushed the patient hard enough to knock into the floor inside. The two of them had confiscated his shoes and clothes. He seemed small and feeble in the scratchy uniform worn by all of the patients. Down in the slums. McMorning said he was just standing there over some dead body. He closed the door. Having a talk with himself. The bolt slid closed with a loud clunk. They opened a small window set into the door to gawk at him with their half-slack jaws. Did he kill him? It was a woman, but nah. Chet said the woman had been shot, and this fella didn't have no gun. Besides, he ain't got no blood on him, neither. Must have been his wife or something. The orderlies shut the little window, and their voices trailed off down the hall. The patient shattered the silence with the drone of an incomplete drinking song. It's worse than a cat and eat that wailing. The orderlies knew that the man could sing on key but he seemed to prefer being as loud as he could over singing properly. I don't know how much longer I can take it, Jeb. Beyond all irrational possibility, the patient had kept singing for nearly two weeks. He chanted in the morning, bellowed in the evenings, and crooned as he slept. Always the same bits of the same song. Well, he ain't going to stop any time soon. The guard rattled the door, but neither bothered to articulate what they wanted. There was never a quiet day at the Smedley Sanitarium now. The patient leaned against the wall as he sang. The blankets pulled off his bed and wrapped around him in a sort of nest. And talk it into our hidey hole, yo! He laughed, and the sound was worse than his singing. Still laughing, he rose and carried the blanket to the door, where he could peer out through the tiny window bars. Yoo-hoo! He poked a corner of the blanket through the bars and waved it at the orderlies. We can hear ye in here, boyo. Bennett, don't look at him, Jeb whispered, but he was too late. The patient's eyes were wild, and he could swear they were glowing, though it must have been some trick of the light. Bennett was just happy that the singing had stopped. Lie down and shut up. The doctor ain't even here yet. The patient knew that. He could always tell when Dr. Smedley was in. Ian Smedley had a new method of rehabilitation, he'd been told. The screaming had been almost as loud as the singing. There were plenty of success stories already. The patient was one of them. But the good doctor couldn't know that. He couldn't know how the screams of the other patients had filled him with glee. How their terror had shuddered through his body, calling fond memories of murder. He pulled the blanket back through the window and stretched out his long legs as he sat. For the first time since he arrived, he was thinking of something outside the walls, something other than his songs. Molly girl, we've got a little favor task. Then he laughed and laughed. The guards looked at each other and Jeb spoke. It beats his singing. Bennett shrugged. He wasn't so sure.
not now. Douglas McMorning spoke in a sing-song voice as he peered at her through the barely open door. His one visible eye went immediately to her pale hands and then back up to her face. She could glimpse a man in fine clothes and a simple mask beyond him. You're lucky he's too focused on the dead man on my slab to notice the dead woman in my carving room. He shut the door brusquely in her face. He's with the secretary. Sebastian, the morgue assistant, didn't look over at Molly Squidpidge when he spoke. He was too focused on dismembering the body of a guild guard. A recent arcanist attack had left two dead, and this one had already been identified. If he didn't finish quickly, the corpses would be piled higher and higher next to his workstation, which was already three bodies deep. Would you mind? Molly looked over at him, then shrugged and crossed the room to hold the foot of the corpse steady. The saw whined and cracked the bone unevenly. Wouldn't it be easier to cut it at the knee? The saw whined again, and Sebastian finally cut through the femur. The leg slipped off the table, and Molly held on by the heel, allowing the blood to drain in gushes while the knee swung loosely. Life had been different for her since Seamus died. The Gorgon's tear that she had used to revive him had been the reason she had resurrected differently than Seamus' other bells, and she had worried that without it in hand, she would become little more than a dried-out husk. That worry worsened when he abandoned her deep in the quarantine zone. A deep cough worked its way through her chest, spraying blood and mucus into her free hand. She looked around, then wiped it onto the guild guard's remaining leg. That wasn't going to be a problem. The problem was Seamus himself. There was a wail from the other room, and Molly pushed the door open slightly. She saw that the woman was bent over the dead guard, sobbing. No one cared so much when she died. She could remember part of her funeral, how everyone was standing around talking about what a shame it was that she had been killed and what a tragedy it was, and then screaming, No, don't kill me! Well, that last part was likely unrelated to grief. The door closed with a quiet thud, and she turned back to Sebastian. Would you let the doctor know that I'm going to borrow a few of his friends? The leg in her hand presented a sudden temptation. The sobbing woman would scream as she threw it into the room. Seamus would have liked that, but he wasn't here. He hadn't been with her in two months, ever since they had taken him away, ever since the incident with that Cassidy girl. They had gone hunting for some fresh blood and found the girl in the slums trying to sell flowers of all things. It really was for her own good that they killed her. Molly believed that. But then something had gone wrong. Seamus began muttering to himself, and she couldn't make out anything he was saying. He had dropped his gun, needing both hands for the extravagant gestures he was making in the air. Someone's coming, she had whispered. Seamus! But he hadn't heard. She knew enough not to leave him there with a murder weapon when the two guild guards turned the corner and spotted them. She grabbed his gun and the bells had followed her blindly into a back alley as she had watched them take her Seamus away. Yes, ma'am, I will do so. Seamus nodded more times than was necessary and took the leg from her, tossing it onto a pile of other parts for McMorning to examine. And Molly, don't forget your head. 
Molly smiled at him and picked Philip's head out of the pile of parts. See anything you liked? Philip started to say something, but she hugged him to her chest, burying his face in the fabric of her dress. Whatever he had tried to say came out as little more than a mumble. Oh, that's too bad. Any thoughts on who he is yet? Debit asked nearly every day about their mystery patient. Bennett exhaled and shook his head. Not since the last time you asked. Look, they sent that fella over from the coroner's, right? The guy they used to identify his people. Bennett kept talking over Jeb's agreement. If he ain't no, then who would? Jeb raised a tired rebuttal. He looked like he knew. Bennett gave him a stern look. What's he gonna go and lie for? Same reason Dr. Smedley lied. Smedley sure looked like he knew him, and he was awful happy. He said he was an interesting case, and grinned wider than I ever saw. It occurred to them as they talked, that the patients had been quiet for far longer than normal. At first they had been glad for the peace, but it had gone on too long. Jeb looked over at Bennett as they walked past his cell, but his companion just shrugged. We're almost done. Whatever he's doing can wait until the new shift comes on. Jeb wasn't convinced. He stopped and opened the door window to look in. His voice gave a high pitch as he said, Bennett, he's gone. Move over. Bennett leaned until he could see through the small bars. Jeb was right. There was no sign of the patient. Smedley'll have our heads for this, you know. As he fumbled with his ring of keys, a twisted loop of bedsheet flew through the bars of the door window. It slipped easily around Bennett's neck and pulled him to the door. Jeb yelled, but they had been yelling at the patient for months. No one came to help as he stood paralyzed and watched Bennett suffocate. They made a strange group, but compared to the other things that wandered the sewers, they were relatively normal. Molly walked in the front, swinging a heavy purse which occasionally mumbled something about motion sickness. Behind her came the two remaining bells and a canine beast which had once had three heads. One of the heads had been lost in some accident, and she felt bad for the poor little guy, stuck in its cage all day waiting for McMorning to fix him up. Scuttling along at the end was the strange machine that had started following her in the basement of Octavius Hall, its bug-like legs clattering against the cobblestones like impatient nails on a table. Seamus would have appreciated it. Well, Kelly girl, I'm thinking we're right close. Molly bounced her head from side to side, doing a poor imitation of her master, but the bell didn't seem to mind. That means stop walking. Are you daft? Trying to talk like Seamus was harder than it seemed and sent her into a spastic fit of coughing that only ended when she spat a large wad of bloody mucus on the ground. Thankfully, the bells had listened to her earlier order, and they'd stop beneath the manhole instead of wandering to their next death further down the pipe. Let's see just how close. 
Molly climbed to the top of the ladder beneath the manhole cover and opened the heavy purse she still carried. Were you trying to crack my skull open? Philip demanded when she finally pulled him free. There was a strange imprint on his forehead from the other items he'd been shoved into the purse with. How close are we to the loony bin? Molly clung to the ladder with one hand and shoved Philip's head through the manhole with the other. If he'd been able to feel pain, it would have sent his head ringing. As it was, it still took him a moment to get his bearings, especially since the heavy manhole cover forced his head to the side so he was seeing everything at an angle. Then, as soon as he made sense of the view, he was falling and rolling across the dirty sewer floor. When he stopped, he could see Molly laying on the ground where she'd fallen off the ladder, the strange little necrotic machine nudging her with one of its syringe claws. We're right outside the gates, he said. It was good to be back in control, when he called for the lingering spirit of his guard to bend to his will. Bennett's body shuddered and stood again under its own power. Jameis laughed as the undead orderly turned on his partner, bashing the man's head in as he stood frozen in terror. His only regret was that Bennett was too dead to realize his own strength, and had left Jeb too broken to bother raising. The zombie fumbled around and found the key, and then Seamus was free. Wearing only the plain clothes of a patient, he knew he wouldn't get far. He borrowed Jeb's blood-stained uniform, but hesitated before changing. Don't peek now, Boyle. It wasn't a long walk back to the main level, but it took them nearly an hour because Seamus paused at every door to see who was hiding inside. By the time he reached the entrance, he had begun gathering a new harem, though they would all need new outfits. From what little he could remember, the main hall would be staffed with at least a dozen guards. The zombies he'd raised probably wouldn't be enough, but if he was lucky, they could cause a distraction that would let him slip away. If he was really lucky, then she would be here. He looked around the corner, then stepped into full view and laughed. Molly, what were you thinking bringing that here? Molly looked at him, then at the giant hodgepodge beast that she had borrowed from McMorning. Most of the guards were dead. Some had festering bite marks from the creature's teeth. Others severe burns from the acid it had spat. I thought he might like a walk. She reached into the purse and fished around next to Philip's head to produce his gun. Seamus' face lit up, and he rushed to take his favorite toy from Molly. One of the guards groaned and rolled over, looking at them. He mouthed a silent plea for help. Seamus lowered the gun and fired. A voice in the back of his head whispered. Every kill steadied him more, but he could still hear her, hear the Gorgon's whisper. Some of what she said was useful. Tricks he never would have considered to raise the dead, but it would be folly to obey her blindly. Any chance there is something a bit more fitting to wear in that bag? He waggled his eyebrows at her as they stepped out into the open night air.
Well, there you have it. Even death isn't always what it seems in Malifaux. If you do see Richard or Elizabeth shuffling around, please give them my best. Join us next time for another episode of the Breachside Broadcast. <laughs>